0: New Testament reading comes from Luke 9 51 through 56 and 19 28 through 40. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, "Go into the village in front of you; where entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it?" You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who went away, who were sent, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out, the word of the Lord.
1: Let me pray for us as, before we think about this. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who guided those who wrote it down for us and who told us exactly what we needed uh, to see and hear. And Father, I pray this morning uh, that we would receive him, the one who comes to us. Uh, that we would see him as he is, and we would see that the way that he comes is exactly what we need, uh, that this is the king that we need, that this is the savior that we need. Father, help us to see why that is, and help us to give you glory for it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder um, what you would think or how you would feel if you overheard a conversation where somebody was describing you to somebody else. I mean, right there, I mean, if we just stop right there, paranoia sets in. Don't talk about, don't describe me to somebody else with, I don't want to know what you're going to say about me. But imagine if like the person sort of went back and forth trying to describe you and then they settled on one word. And they said, you know, when I think about this person, the word that continually comes to my mind over and over again is the word meek what would you think? How would you feel? If you were described as somebody who was, who was meek, I, I don't think it's a word that we use very often anymore, and I think it just sounds a little too close to weak, and so we just sort of think, I don't want to be known as that, right? That sounds like when I think of somebody who is, is meek, um, I might think of somebody who is sort of homely, um, somebody who is just sort of, um, yeah, who's sort of weak, But meekness, and the reason that I'm bringing this up, I think you'll see in a minute, the words not used in our passage this morning, but I think that what we see in this passage is the meekness of Jesus, and that Jesus is characterized as somebody who is meek. And so what is that? What does that mean? What does that look like? There's a poet named Mary Carr who... um, very interesting, has a very interesting life. She's a recovering alcoholic. She converted to Christianity later in life. And she has a poem that's called Who the Meek Are Not. All right, I'm going to read you a poem. And I'm sorry, but I'm going to. And um, it's an easy poem to follow. But I want you to listen to this, because she describes who the meek are not, but then she describes what meekness looks like. Who the meek are not. Not the bristle-bearded Igor's. Bent under burlap sacks, not peasants knee deep in the rice paddy muck, nor the serfs whose quarter moon sickles make the wheat fall in waves they don't get to eat. My friend, the Franciscan nun, says we misread that word meek in the Bible verse that blesses them. To understand the meek, she says, Picture a great stallion at full gallop in a meadow who, at his master's voice, seizes up to a stunned but instant halt. So with the strain of holding that great power in check, the muscles along the arched neck keep eddying, and only the velvet ears prick forward. Awaiting the next order. Did you form that vision in your head as I read it? I mean, think of it now if you didn't, if you sort of zoned out when, when I said I was going to read you a poem. Think about it now that you think about a great stallion. Just think it, look, see it in your head, running in a field, galloping through a field. And then as, a, as its master calls out, stop, it comes to an instantaneous halt. So that the, the muscles in its neck, you watch them rippling, or she says, eddying, and its ears are pricked forward, and it's waiting for the next command of its master. Now think about Jesus. Think about Jesus, who is the creator of all things who all dominion and authority is underneath his feet. And think about him in this moment as he's riding into Jerusalem, that he's entering Jerusalem, that this is the place, that this is the destination that he has been moving towards throughout the gospel, and now he's arriving in that place, and there's cries of, of Hosanna that are coming out. And he knows because he knows all things. He knows that the cries that are coming out of the individual lips, he knows the lips that are making those cries. And he knows that in a few short days, those cries are going to turn into crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And he's riding on a, on a colt, a donkey. A donkey. And we heard the passage from the prophet Zechariah, and we know that um, he chooses this animal. He's fulfilling that prophecy, but we also know that he's painting a picture for us, because this is a a paradox, it's a juxtaposition, that the maker and the creator of the heavens and earth is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And he's painting a picture of, of, he's telling us something about who he is, and he's telling us something about what he's like. This is what meekness looks like. It is unfathomable power. And it is constrained and it is pointed and it is directed toward the goal that he is pursuing. The muscles in his neck are tense, his ears are attuned to the next command of his father. Why did these people gather? Why did they applaud him? I mean, think about the, the fact that they see Jesus coming and they, they come out and they, some of them take off their outer garment and they lay it in the dirt so that he can walk on top of it. Have you ever done that for anybody before? I've never done that for anybody before. They take off their outer garment. It may have been like one of two garments that they had and they lay it on the road so that he can walk over it. And Luke tells us that really the reason that they're there and the reason that they're welcoming him in this way is because they've seen him do things. They've seen his, he says, that they've seen his mighty works. Maybe a few of them were there at the wedding of Cana, his first miracle, when the wine was starting to run out. And the next thing you know, They have enough wine to last a week, and it's good. Maybe some of them were there standing um, outside of the tomb of Lazarus. And they heard Jesus call into that tomb and tell Lazarus to get up and to come out. And they actually saw a man wrapped in his burial clothes coming out of a tomb. Maybe some of them saw that. What we know is that they were impressed with the power of Jesus. And maybe they gathered there that morning because they thought, well, finally he's made it here. And now we're going to see what he's going to do. What can that type of power do for us? What can that type of power do for for this city and for this people? And how could this type of power restore us? If you can bring a man out of the grave, I'm curious to see what it can do for me. And they received and they applauded who they thought he was, but they did not receive him as he was. They received and they applauded who they thought he was. They received and they applauded who they wanted him to be, but they did not receive him as he was. And so as Jesus turns, I included this passage from 10 chapters earlier in Luke's gospel. Jesus turns. And he sets his face on Jerusalem. I don't know, that, that line, I don't know why it always grabs me, because it, I, I think it's sort of metaphorically he's turning towards Jerusalem, but also I think maybe physically in the moment of whatever he was doing, he just sort of drops it and turns like in a movie and looks in the direction of Jerusalem. And he says, it's time for me to head there. And he, he begins to move towards Jerusalem. And as he does that, he goes through Samaria and the people there did not receive him. And the disciples get upset by this, and they're frustrated. And they start thinking, because they have their own ideas about why Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. And they, um, they, they show their cards in certain places that they think when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he's going to ascend upon a throne. And that he is going to rule and reign, and that they might even be on his right and on his left. And so as they start their approach to Jerusalem and they go through Samaria and the people there do not receive Jesus, they get angry about that. And part of that is that they want him to be received in a way that they think he should be received because they think, well, this looks good for us too. And so they make this, they make this offer to Jesus, which is kind of hilarious. They say, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? I mean, that's a, they must be very frustrated. They want fire to come down from heaven and consume these people who did not receive Jesus. But Jesus turns and rebukes them. And why does Jesus rebuke them? Because Jesus knows that if they call down fire from heaven to consume those people that did not receive Jesus, the fire would have to consume the disciples as well. Because what we watch in the next few days is that they also do not receive him as he is. That they also reject him and deny him and desert him and betray him. And what we find on Friday is that the fire does fall from heaven, but it falls upon Jesus. And of course, it's also true for us that we can't really understand this Jesus and receive this Jesus as he is if we don't understand and ask the hard questions about who we actually are, and what we expect him to be. Because Jesus comes as he does, because he does understand who we are. And he does understand what we need. They wouldn't have chosen a king like Jesus. And we wouldn't on our own either. And so who are we? And why do we need this type of king? And that's really the story of the entire Bible, isn't it? I mean, that's the story, and that's the message of the Scripture. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's the story of a people who were created by him and who are created for him, and yet in their ignorance they have rejected him. It's the story of this chasm that has been set between God and man. And it's the story of man's journey to find peace and wholeness and happiness apart from him, without him. It's the story of the need for us to be united to him means that we need to be redeemed. And in order for us to be redeemed, it means that there has to be blood that is shed because the wages of our sin means death. This is why Jesus comes. And it's only one person who can redeem us. Because there's no other man, there's no other woman, there's no other person who can represent us, that they have to be both God and man, that they have to be divine and they have to be sovereign, but they also have to be without sin in order to stand in that gap. But to stand in that gap means they also have to be humble. They have to be meek. Because Jesus gazes into the eyes of those who have rebelled against him, who did not receive him, who have rejected him, who will betray him, who have denied him, and he weeps over them, and he's moved with compassion for them. There's this scene in the last book of the Bible, John banished to the island of Patmos, he receives these visions, and in one of those visions, he's, um, basically he's, He's weeping, and he's frustrated because there's this scroll that has seven seals on it, and there's nobody who can open this scroll. And this angel is speaking to John, and the angel says to John, he says these words in Revelation chapter 5, Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then John says, "And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And so you hear what happens is that John says, the angel says to John, don't don't weep anymore. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And the lion of the tribe of Judah is the only one who can open the scroll with its seven seals. And so John looks up and he looks up at this throne and what he sees is a lamb, standing as though it had been slain. And I'm sure John was thinking, I was looking for a lion, and what I see instead is a lamb. Because Jesus is both of those things. The one who rides in triumphantly upon a donkey into the city he has set his face toward for a particular reason and a particular purpose and a particular people this one is both a lion and a lamb and i want to ask just two little two short questions this morning how is he a lion and how is he a lamb how is jesus both of these things how do we see that In this passage, because I think both of these things are so evident in this passage, but they're so evident in everything that he will do this week, that Jesus is both lion and Jesus is both lamb. And I think there's a lot of ways we could compare him to a lion, but I want to just point out two. And the first one is that lions are sovereign over their territory. If you ever watched a nature documentary, you know this, right? If you know anything about lions, you know you don't want to enter into the territory of a lion because the lion is the king and the lion has control over all of that territory unless you're that one guy and the, the, who went viral in videos a while back who like plays with lions. Did you ever watch that? It's, it's, he's probably not alive anymore, but I don't think you can do that for very long and, and actually live. The lions are sovereign over their territory, Right? If there's anything that a lion exudes, a lion exudes control and authority. They are in control. Their presence, the way that they look, they are in control and they have authority. Jesus is sovereign over his territory. And his territory covers the entire universe. He is sovereign over it. There's nothing that happens by... random coincidence that he he is a lion in the sense that he is in control that he is sovereign over all things and like a lion he sets his face on Jerusalem and he moves toward it knowing the exact reason he is there the exact reason he has come and like a lion he is here this morning and he moves towards us And the reason that you are here is not a mistake. It's not happenstance. It's because Jesus wants to meet with you. He is that sovereign. That Jesus calls you into his presence. And it's not the other way around. In this passage, you see Jesus orchestrate every detail of his entry, that he gives his disciples specific instructions. You're going to go to this guy. He's going to have a donkey. They're going to ask you this question. You're going to respond this way. And it all happens just like that. And we're like, that's kind of weird. Why did he include that? Why do we even know, need to know the specifics of how he got the donkey? Because what Luke is showing us is that Jesus is in control. Jesus specifically is entering in this way. This isn't random. This isn't coincidence. Jesus is sovereign over this moment. I love at the very end of this passage how um, before Jesus had rebuked his disciples for wanting to call fire down out of heaven. And now as all these people praise Jesus, the Pharisees tell Jesus to rebuke his disciples. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. But even if I did, the very stones would cry out. Stones don't have mouths. Every last molecule of every stone belongs to Jesus. And he is in control over it. And he's saying, I don't have to worry about your praise. I actually know what your praise is going to turn into. If I want praise, I would talk to the stones right now. And the stones would form mouths and lungs and they would proclaim praise to me. I am sovereign over all things. In John 10, Jesus says, for this reason, the father loves me, because I, I lay down my life that I might pick it up again, take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord and I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again like a lion. Jesus is. Lions are sovereign, but if you know anything else about lions, lions are fierce. You don't want to be that guy playing with the lion. He thinks that that lion's his friend. You know, I don't, I'm just not convinced. Lions are fierce. Lions are, you think, look, watch what Jesus does. If you go and read the rest of this passage, Jesus, right after this, and in all the Gospels, Jesus enters the city. And really, the, one of the first places he goes is into the temple. And what does he do in the temple? And I think if you if you've never read the gospels before and you're kind of tracking with Jesus and then you see this moment with Jesus, Jesus goes in and he takes tables and flips them over. And he drives out those who are corrupting his father's name. Jesus is absolutely fierce. And what do we what what does that tell us? Well, it means that Jesus doesn't disregard injustices that are happening within his territory. And as again, I said, where's his territory? His territory is the, is the entire span of the universe. And he doesn't tolerate the injustices and the sin and the abuses that are happening within his territory. And I think that maybe even as we hear that, some of us in our very limited, finite perspective, look around in this world and what we think is that Jesus is impotent that his hands are tied, that he can't do anything about it. Why does he let this happen? Why does he let that happen? And it's good for us to see the injustices in this world, to see the things that we want God to do things about and to do something about them and also to cry out to him and to cry out to him and say, how long, Oh Lord, will you let this go on forever? It's good for us to do that. But it's also good for us to remember what Peter tells us in, In 2 Peter chapter 3, that he says, Don't you forget this. Don't you forget this, my brothers, he says, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. He is not slow in keeping his promises. He has not forgotten the territory over which he is sovereign. He is fiercely, he is fiercely in control of it and fiercely defending it. And what that means is that he will write, All that is wrong. This is why he rides into Jerusalem that day, that he will right all injustices and abuses and sin because all of those things that upset us so much are first and foremost offenses against his rule and his reign. And he cares more about them than we even do. He is a lion, but he is also a lamb. If we know anything about lambs, we know that they're gentle, right? If you've never seen a fierce lamb, I don't, I mean, maybe they're, maybe they're out there. I don't know a lot about lambs. So not a lamb expert, but I don't, I, I think it's commonly held assumption. Lambs are not fierce animals, right? Lambs are gentle. And when Jesus enters the city, he weeps over it. He looks at the people and he says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he weeps over them. When Jesus stands at the entrance of the tomb of his friend who has, been, who has died, Jesus, who will in a few moments raise him from the dead, weeps over death. Jesus is so fierce with those who are using his name for their own game. And hurting other people in the process and keeping them away from him. And Jesus is so gentle with those who have been used. With those who have been hurt. With those who have been abused. That Jesus, with you see him with lepers and you see him with prostitutes. And you see him with those who are desperately sick. And you see them with those who are possessed by demons. And Jesus is so utterly gentle with them, he is the king of all things. He is a lion, but he is also a lamb. Lambs are gentle, but you know what else lambs are? Lambs are sacrificial. The whole purpose of a lamb is to give its life for something else. This is why we raise them, is so that they can give their life for food. They can give their life for clothing. And the reason that Jesus comes to Jerusalem The reason that this is his final destination is that Jesus comes as a sacrifice. This is a death march. Nobody's putting a gun to his back to do it. He says, I lay down my life on my own authority. That Jesus is like a sheep, Isaiah says, who's led to slaughter, and yet he opens not his mouth. Make no mistake about it, the lion of the tribe of Judah rides into Jerusalem as a lamb to be slain. So why do we need a king who's both a lion and a lamb? Because our sin is much greater than we understand. And we can often be like the disciples and we can say, I see somebody over there who's got some issues. Do you want me to call down fire from heaven on them? And Jesus is saying, you would need the fire to be called down on your head as well. And it's beyond what our, our sin is beyond what we can mend. It's beyond what we can comprehend because our sin is first and foremost is an offense against him and his rule and his reign and his authority. Because he is the king of all things and he has created us for a reason and a purpose. And that reason and purpose is to glorify him and him alone. And what we need is we need a lion to ride in and we need a lion to rescue us. But we need a lamb to stand in our place. Because we are all born in Adam, and in Adam we all fell, and we need another Adam to come and to represent us, and we need a spotless sacrifice to be offered for our sins, and we need what we don't have, which is righteousness, to stand before a God who is holy and in whom there is no darkness, and Jesus covers us with his righteousness. In Jesus, we have all of these things. And you see, the, 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 the problem of our sin is what propels Jesus in his passion this week. The culmination of Jesus' life is not his mighty works that the pe- pe- people gathered to give him praise for. As glorious as they were, the mighty works were just an example. They were a sampling of what he one day will do. The power of Jesus' life is not in his teaching, although he uttered the most wise words that have ever been uttered, and we, as his followers, should obey and listen to all of his words. The climax of Jesus' life is what unfolds over the course of this week, and this is why all the Gospels give the bulk of their, their gospel to him, to this week. The climax of his life is his death and his conquering of death. And only one who is the lion and the lamb has both the power and the purity to redeem our lives from the wreck that we have made them. So in the midst of all that we're juggling, in the midst of all that we're dealing with, in the midst of our despair, in the midst of our depressions, in the midst of our grief, I want to ask you to just do, do one thing this week. And it's going to seem kind of impractical, and it's going to not seem that big of a deal. And you may even take offense at it because you may think, you don't understand how hard my life is if this is the only thing you're asking me to do, and you think this is going to have any effect in it. The only thing I want us to do this week is I just want you to make some space to meditate on the person and the work of Jesus. That might mean going back through and reading these gospels, reading these weeks of his passion, Read uh, maybe partic- pick one gospel and just meditate on it. Watch Jesus as he, as he moves forward throughout this week. See how he is both uh, a lion and a lamb, and see how he is the king that you need. I want to leave you with some words that I read this week that really struck me, and they're by... A pastor actually ended with the words of Jonathan Edwards last week, and I'm going to end with the words of Jonathan Edwards this week. And he talks about Jesus being both of these things, being both the lion and the lamb. And he says, Jesus Christ will come again and will appear as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He will appear in infinite greatness and majesty when he shall come again in glory with all his holy angels and the earth shall tremble before him and the hills shall melt the devils tremble at the thought of his appearance. And when the time comes, the king and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men, they shall hide themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and shall cry out to the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and to hide them from the face and the wrath of the lion. But Jesus Christ will at the same time appear as a lamb to his saints. He will receive them as friends and brothers and sisters, treating those who believe him and have waited his return with infinite mildness and love. The church shall be then admitted to him as his bride, and that shall be their wedding day. The saints shall all be sweetly invited to come with him to inherit the kingdom and to reign with him. For all eternity. Let me pray. Father, we, or at least we we confess that we would never fashion a king like Jesus, that we couldn't fathom or comprehend one who is like both a lion and a lamb, one who has true meekness, unfathomable power. And yet, at the same time, complete submission. And Father, we confess this morning, he is the king that we need. Father, I pray that you would help us to see that um, our sin isn't manageable. That what we don't need is simply behavior modification. That what we do need is the perfect, spotless, Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the the world. And Father, I pray that you would help us to see this morning. He has come specifically for us. That there are individuals in this room this morning who may not yet see it or know it. Father, I pray that you would open their eyes to it so that they might see. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.